Well, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue on into the book of James, and I've entitled the message this morning, The Power of the Tongue. I don't know if you've noticed, we've gone through the book of James, he's kind of, uh, I like to refer to it as the, the, the book of Proverbs of the New Testament, because it's not really one focused thing, it's just a lot of great things for our lives. But one of the most important things that we'll, we'll discuss this, this morning is the power of the tongue, or the power of the words that we say. But before we move forward, let's go ahead and do a, a quick recap of what we've done the last couple of weeks, or last week. And if you remember, last week the, the focus was that we would be hearers of the word and not just doers of the word. We also heard that uh, James' instructions for us to, regarding showing pers- uh, partiality to the, to the people in the body of Christ, based on people's circumstances, being rich or poor, what they're doing, but we need to, to not show partiality, because God does not show partiality. And finally, we looked at the, the big topic of, of faith and works. And if you didn't get a chance to, uh, to hear it last week, I'd encourage you to go online and take a listen because it's, uh, that's a really important topic for us today as Christians to understand that, that the result of real faith is good works in the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. And today we're going to go ahead and uh, move through chapter 3 and also get started into chapter 4. But in chapter 3 is where the, the, the big, the meat of today is, and that's the importance of our tongue and how powerful it really is to affect our lives. And then we're also going to take a look at the difference between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. How many of those things, two things are very, very different? Godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And finally in chapter 4, James begins to teach us on the conflict that arises when we are, are being a friend to the world. So let's go ahead and, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started in James chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> in James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. See, this is an interesting verse to me. Because many people aspire to be teachers. How many in this room would maybe one day hope to be a teacher of the Word, at least in some capacity? That's a good thing that we'd aspire to be teachers. But something we have to remember, and this is the, the point that James is, is making, says not many of you should become teachers, is that it's not to be taken lightly. Being a teacher of the Word is not just something that you do flippantly, because there's a responsibility that comes alongside of it. How many know that those who teach are judged to a stricter standard than those who don't? He says that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That means that that those who teach are going to give an account for what they say. Those who preach and teach, pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers, all of those are going to give an account for what they've taught. How many know that if I were to get up here and teach you that the only way to get into heaven is to give 25% of your income and, and... and that you have to go to every Sunday service and every Wednesday service. I mean, if I were to teach stuff like that, I would have to give an account for that because I'd be leading the flock astray. That's, that's not obviously biblical. How I many know it's good that you come to every Sunday service and you come to every Wednesday service? And you know what? Me and God aren't going to complain if you want to give 25% of your income. But salvation is not based on that. Salvation is based on your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I would one day have to answer for teaching those kind of things. That's one of the things that, that when I prepare messages is that I want to make sure that I'm getting it right. I want to spend time in the Word and learn what God has to say because uh, I think many teachers out there are going to be standing in front of, front of God with an embarrassed look on their faces. They realize that either intentionally or unintentionally, they were teaching the wrong thing. 
It wasn't in line with what his word had to say. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Like I said, I'm going to give an account one day for what I stand up here and teach. And that's the, the responsibility that is, that is borne by teachers. And not only are we going to have to, our teachers, do they have to answer and give an account in heaven one day, you know, we also answer to the congregation. We also answer to those we teach to. We have to give an account to them as well. In 1 John 4, 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. As a congregation, you should be testing what you're taught. You should be testing what you're hearing. If you're being taught something and you, you read the Scriptures and it's not in line with the Word of God, it doesn't measure up to the Word of God, for instance, if I were to tell you that you can't get into heaven unless you tithe 25% of your income, you could take a look at the Word of God and say, you know what, that's just not quite right. I don't, I don't find that in there. Or at the very least, you could say, hey, you want to explain this to me? Because I don't find that in there. We should be testing what comes in our ears, what we, what we listen to. Because if we listen to every single thing that we hear, if we listen to and let that into our lives, it can lead you astray. So we need to be testing that against the Word of God and know as a teacher, if you aspire to be a teacher, that that's what should be happening to you. You need to give an account not only to heaven, but to those who, who you teach too. I want you to know that being a pastor, being a teacher in the body of Christ, that's a, a great thing. It's an honorable thing to do. In 1 Timothy 3.1, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you're wanting to serve the kingdom of God. See, the, the thing is, it's not wanting to, to teach is not a problem. And he's saying not many of you should become teachers. Is We need to evaluate our reasons for wanting to become teachers. If you want to be a pastor, if you want to be a teacher, just so you can stand up front and tell people what to do, you got the wrong, the wrong motives going in. That's not what God has for you. And that's actually going to cause you to do silly things like not teaching the Word of God for your own benefit and not others. The truth is, most people that get up here and preach, myself included, we like this to a certain extent. How many know that that's, that's part of it? You, you like to be up in front of people. You like to speak. And that's all part of it. I think if you, if you didn't like that at all, you would have a really hard time getting up here in the first place. But if that's your only reason for doing any of this stuff, then you've got a serious problem. And God can't use you because you're up here for your own personal gain. So that's what he's trying to make a, make a point here as he's speaking. He, as we know, we learned that he's speaking to the Jews that were scattered. He's speaking to Christians that are going out there and doing this and doing that. He's saying, guys, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. You know, when I was first called to be a pastor, I argued with God for a long time, and then I finally said, okay, God, I'll do what you, you want me to do. Because even though there might be a little, little me that likes the spotlight, there's a whole lot of me that'd rather not be <laughs> Up here, at least at that point. <laughs> and uh, I, I fought with God for a long time, and I finally said, okay, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then I began to, went to my pastor and said, okay, this, this is it, let's do it. And then I spoke to Pastor Rick, who's another pastor of the church, and he says, all right, but I'm going to give you one piece of advice. He says, if you can do anything else, do it. 
That's an interesting piece of advice to tell a teacher or pastor. And the point is, is that if you're called to do this, you can't do anything else. You know, I have a, I have a great job. I get paid decent money and I like what I do, but when I do it, it's not the same. There's no, it's not my calling. I can't do anything else. And I wouldn't trade it for anything else. But I recognize, and so should anybody who aspires to be a teacher, that there is a greater strictness. There is a, a greater responsibility that comes alongside it. So I don't want to say anything. This is not to discourage you. It's just to understand what, what you're doing as you go forward. Amen? Amen. In James 3, 2-5, through 5, it says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Who wants to be perfect? And we're all perfect on the inside in our spirit because of what Jesus Christ done in us. But how many want to live perfect? I do. I want to live out perfectly what God has accomplished inside of me. And James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able, to also, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are, they are so large and are, so, and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. See, the imagery that James is using here is large, powerful, unwieldy things that are being guided and directed with very small tools. With, with, it doesn't make any sense how these things can do that. Anybody ever worked with horses before? Not at all? I did. My, my mom still has horses. Remind me after the service, I'll show you a video of, of uh, one of the horses that you can ask if she wants a treat, and she just shakes his head up and down. <laughs> Michelle, we were just down there this last weekend with them, and they were doing it. But horses are huge, and they are big, strong animals, and particularly strong-willed, wild ones. They use a bit to direct where they're going. If you've ever seen it, what it is, they put a harness over the mouth and there's a metal bit that sticks inside their mouth and it's slightly uncomfortable for them when it's pressed one way or the other so they, they go where it wants to go because they don't want to feel the uncomfortableness. And particularly in strong-willed horses, you have to use these bits to get them to do what you want. But it's amazing that that little thing can direct, you know, thousand-plus-pound animals where you want it to go. And then boats are also massive vessels that are guided by something that is so small that if you didn't know any better, you would swear that that would be an impossible task for that little thing to accomplish. The largest ship of the world is called the Oasis of the Seas. It's almost 1,200 feet long and it weighs 100,000 tons. That doesn't make any sense to me. How does a metal thing weighs 100,000 tons stay afloat in the water? But praise God it does. <laughs> Especially you're praising God it does if you're on it. <laughs> the rudder on this thing is approximately 15 to 100 feet long and 100 feet tall, including the propellers that are part of the rudder. This thing is 1,200 feet long, and it's directed by something that's 100, less than 100 foot long. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, we know it works. We see it work. But that's amazing that something so small can guide something so large and powerful. And our tongue is like that for us. 
It's something so small in our body, yet it can guide our entire, our bo- entire body. It can have a fundamental impact, and it can actually change the course of our lives. And the tongue, just like the rudder, is directed by the pilot. Our, st- our tongue steers our lives, but the truth is we need to steer our tongues. And like a fire, it can get out of hand. Words can get out of hand. And it can blaze out of control if we're not careful. And this tiny little flame that is our tongue can set our life on fire. When I was growing up, I left uh, Missouri. I lived in Missouri when I was growing up in a, in a town called uh, Big Piney. It was right outside of Fort Leonard Wood. Um, just a, a big pine tree forest. And uh, we moved to Germany when I was nine. So I must have been seven or eight years old at the time. And we went out into the woods and... And there was uh, like a, a quad trail or a four, uh, you know, four-wheeler trail that went out there. And, and when it would rain, you would get those spots where, where tires would spin out and make these big giant holes. So me and a buddy of mine decided to go out there and we built a fire in one of those holes in the middle of the... So it's surrounded by dirt. And it's in this little hole. There's nothing around it. And we built a little fire. And when we were done, we put it out. We covered it up with... Uh, uh, dirt and uh, all those things and you know we put it out supposedly and from that little fire that we made that seemed to be so far away from everything ended up burning down acres and acres of forest and uh, I'm convinced I put it out I think I was set up but (laughs) yeah that's what a little boy says you know uh, whatever happened there whatever was left a little coal flew out. A little something so tiny must have flown out of there and started the, the bed of pine needles on fire and burnt down acres of forest. And that doesn't make any sense. Something so small could do so much damage. But the truth is, our tongue is just like that. Even the smallest thing can cause great damage. So James says, it is true that we all stumble in many ways. I mean, that's true. We all stumble in many ways. But the first step to getting on track is to start saying the right things. If you'll say the right things, you'll start to guide your life in the, in the correct direction. Because what we say influences what we think. You know, you can't say something for any length of time without believing it, starting to believe it. You know, if you would just get up and make the decision every morning to say, He loves me, He loves me. Even if you're, you're not quite sure, you're, you're just getting a hold of that, eventually you're going to start believing that. And this is also why if, if anybody's ever heard, if I've ever heard you say something like, my diabetes or, or my cold or my headache, I'll say, hey, don't say stuff like that. Don't claim what's not yours. Jesus died, so that wouldn't be yours. But the words that we say have power in our life and begin to claim those things. Jesus said, speak to the mountains. We're supposed to use our words to accomplish things in our life. You could argue with me, Pastor Wayne, you're just, you're just mincing words. It's not that big of a deal. I would argue with you that James thinks something else. Matter of fact, this isn't even the end of it. We're going to keep going on for the next few slides about talking about the power of our tongue. You know, it always amazes me when science figures something out that the Bible's been telling us for over 2,000 years. Well, even longer than that, because Proverbs that deal with, with your tongue are thousands and thousands of years old. But I was reading an article from the Mayo Clinic. 
And they said that there, there's health benefits to positive thinking. And they were talking about positive thinking and self-talk. And they said research continues to explore the effects of positive thinking and optimism on health because health benefits that positive thinking may provide include increased lifespan, lower rates of depression, lower levels of distress, greater resistance to the common cold, better psychological and physical well-being, reduced risk of death from cardiovascular disease, better coping skills during hardships and times of stress. And then this is the next line after they describe all these things. It's unclear why people who engage in positive thinking experience these health benefits. I'm like, ooh, ooh, I know, I know. Look, right here. I said it 2,000 years ago. And even more times other than that. It's amazing. How God knows what he's talking about, right? <laughs> and then something I also noticed for the first time when I was going through this and studying this is that James not only mentioning this giant ship being moved around by the rudder. Because that's my first thing when I see this is a massive ship being moved by this rudder. And that's all I saw on it before. But then I began to notice that he says that the ships also, though they're so large, and are driven by strong winds. How many know that we're going to have winds in our life? We're going to have strong winds in our life. The enemy is going to come against you and huff and puff and try to blow your house down. But if we control what we say, if we will be mindful of the words that come out of our mouth, then we are able to stay our course even when the winds are hurricane strength. Amen? Amen. And James 3, 6-8 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Our tongue has the opportunity to be wilder than the wildest of animals. Matter of fact, I've seen people's tongues be wilder than the wildest of animals, or rather heard. Because even the wildest of animals, we can at least capture and tame them to some extent. But James says that, that no human being can tame the tongue. Now that seems a little bit discouraging, right? He just told us that we need to get a grip on it, we need to have it guide our lives. And then he says, but yeah, you can't even do it. I don't know what he's talking about in your own strength. In your own strength... You're going to fail trying to control those things. Oh, but in Jesus, you can control, you can get a hold of that tongue. And it's important that we do because it's the one thing in our bodies that can stain the entire body. It's the rudder to our life, making our path. James says right here, it's set among our members, staining the whole body. The things that we say affect our whole body, our whole life. And it's true that men can't tame the tongue, but with God, we can bring it under control. If you let Jesus work inside of you, you can bring it under control. Begin to say the things that God says about you. You can bring it under control. If we speak words of life, that's the direction our life is going to go. But if we speak negative words, that's also the direction our life's going to go. The thing about a rudder is it's going to steer, no matter which way you point it. 
You know, there's nowhere in this where it gives the impression that if you steer it in a good direction, you're going to go a good direction. But if you don't steer it at all, everything, you'll just stay where you are. You're going one direction or the other. You know, your tongue has the ability to hurt others as well. Anybody ever heard the expression, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Anybody else ever thought that's the stupidest expression you ever heard? I tell you what, sometimes I think it's easier to heal from broken bones than it is for some of the words that have been, been sent your way. Words can tear people down. Words can destroy people. And that means that the power that we have in our tongue to tear ourselves down can be used to tear others down as well. In Psalms 141.3, it says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I mean, that's a good prayer to, pr- prayer to prayer. Prayer to pray. Remember when I used to work at uh, Old Pueblo Grill? I used to work in the restaurant. That's what I would pray to work every day because I wanted to, to watch what I had to say and I wanted to be a blessing and not tear people down and not hurt people or myself for that matter. But if our tongue is under control, it's under our control because of the power that Christ has empowered us with, with ourselves being submitted to God, our tongue can build people up as well. Your tongue is powerful. Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then in Proverbs 18, 20-21, it says, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. You're going to eat the fruits of what you say, no matter what. And you have the power of death and life in your tongue. You know, we can make an impact on other people's lives, as well as our own by the way we speak, by the words that we say. Are we speaking life? Are we speaking encouragement? Even to yourself, it's okay to encourage yourself in the Lord. And it's definitely okay to encourage others. But we can impact our lives and the lives of others, good or bad, with the things that we say. So let's, let's choose to build them up and ourselves and give grace to all who hear. Like he said there in Ephesians 4.29 at the end, he says, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's choose to speak like that. Amen? In James 3, 9-12, through 12, it says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's kind of like the saying, would you kiss your mama with that mouth? That's what he's saying here. This is the same mouth that you use to bless God, to bless Jesus. You're using to curse others? That just doesn't make sense. The two don't fit together. The truth is that we should be blessing both God and and man with our mouth. And when it com- what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our hearts. Do you know that? 
a reflection of what's in your hearts, what you, what you believe, what you think. Those are the things that come out of your mouth. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew 12, 33-35, He said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of this good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart. You know, so many people try to hide who they are on the inside, and they put forward fronts, but eventually those things come to light because you can't pretend to be something you're not forever. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruit. If you walk up to a tree and it has apples on it, what kind of tree is it? It's an apple tree. What if it has bananas on it? A banana tree. How do you know that? Exactly. You see, that's why Jesus was such a great teacher because he spoke to people on a level they could understand, especially for these guys. This was a, a, an agrarian society. They understood what it meant to... to reproduce the same kind. A, a, a banana tree you know, is going to have bananas and an apple tree apples. And, and if it's any other thing than that, it's going into a lab because they're going to try to figure it out. It's impossible for a banana tree to produce apples and it's impossible for an apple tree to produce bananas. Just like it's impossible for someone who has a changed heart to say and tear people down with their words, or it should be. A reflection of your heart. And it's just like people that are unsaved and their heart is still broken. They can't speak words of life. You know, Jesus talked about careless words. You remember him speaking about careless words? Giving an account for our careless or useless words? Because our words are important. Small talk, the, the small things that we say, those careless words that Jesus was talking about, and it's actually, uh, I think it's verse 36 if you continue reading on there in chapter 12 of uh, Matthew. It's where he talks about giving account for, for, your, for all of your small words, your careless words, small talk. It's because they reveal our true character. So do we speak evilly or do we speak positively? Do we have an abundance of life flowing from us or do we have an abundance of death flowing from us? It's a reflection of our heart. And if you've been changed by Jesus, if he's touched your heart, you've been made brand new, and you still have death flowing from your mouth, you need to make a change. Evaluate what's going on and let, let Jesus flow through you. And we need to take a look at what's coming out of our mouth, what's flowing out of our mouth. Regularly, I think. I think we need to be aware. We need to recognize what it's revealing about us. Is what we're saying, is it producing life? Is it producing blessing? If it's not, begin to say what God says about you. Begin to say what God says about others. Begin to see people as He sees people. Have you been speaking negatively about yourself? Sometimes we might even, others aren't going to know that because that's the stuff that we say to ourselves in our mind or behind closed doors when we say, we're not good enough or we don't measure up or how could God love me or how could anybody love me? When we speak that way about ourselves, we need to recognize that and stop it and begin to say 
things to ourselves, reminding ourselves that we're valuable to God. Remind ourselves that we are victorious, that we are pure, that we are perfect in Him. But you go, well, I don't feel that way, Pastor Wayne. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Your, your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will try to misguide you. They'll try to lead you astray. But the truth of the matter is, is the Word of God says that He loved you so much that He went to the cross and He died on the cross for you. He laid down His life for you. If you had been the only one who had accepted that gift, he would have still went. Or have you been saying negative things to others? Instead, begin speaking what God says about them as well. Because they were worth dying for as well. If God loves them, we should love them. If they're Christians, remember that they are redeemed and perfect in Him. Like Paul said, I refuse to know anybody except through Christ. And if they're not Christians, remember that God valued them so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for them. While we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. When you begin to see people in yourself the way that God sees you, to begin to change what you say about yourself. And the only way that you can begin to see and know what God says about you and others is to spend time in His words. He wrote it down so you could see it. He loves you so much and you are so valuable. Begin to say what He says about you. Amen? So we continue on in James 3, chapter 13 through 16. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For we are jealousy and selfish, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. We can be as intelligent and knowledgeable as anybody in the world, but that would be worthless to us without a little bit of wisdom. There are many intelligent people who would blow your mind with the stuff that they know. But they can't carry on a conversation. They can't hold on to a relationship. We might say it is they have book smarts, but no common sense. Knowledge by itself is worthless. Wisdom is extremely important. In Proverbs 4.7, the Bible says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. The beginning of wisdom is getting wisdom. We need to spend time with that. The beginning of wisdom is not getting knowledge. You notice that's not what it says. The beginning of wisdom is not getting smart and knowing everything. But the beginning of wisdom is, is getting wisdom, becoming wise, which is knowing what to do with that wisdom. And the great news is that if any of us lacks wisdom, we can go to God with it. Do you remember when we started in chapter, chapter 1 of James and verse 5? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you don't have wisdom, that's the place to start. Start asking God for wisdom, how to use the knowledge that you have. And he's not going to be mad at you. He's not going to be upset with you. He's not going to be disappointed with you 
because you're not wise in an area. He says that he gives wisdom generously and without reproach. He's not disappointed in you. There's more opportunity for disappointment if we refuse to go to God and ask for wisdom. So what is wisdom? If you go to the dictionary, <laughs> wisdom says the quality or state of being wise. Don't you love definitions like that? <laughs> but then it says... <laughs> Knowledge of what is true, right, coupled with just judgment as to action. In other words, it's the ability to think and act using your knowledge and insight. Wisdom is the ability to use what you know and apply it to actions. Let me give you a, my favorite example of the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. But the thing that there's also a difference is, is the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. This is actually where the world clashes with God. Godly wisdom is hearing and knowing and doing the word of God. James says the wise and understanding man in his conduct shows his works and wisdom. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. It is wisdom to hear the word of God and do it, to let it show works in your life. But worldly wisdom is fueled by selfish ambition and jealousy. But he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be False to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above. Godly wisdom is hearing the word of God and doing it in your life. Earthly wisdom is full of these things, fueled by jealousy and selfish ambition. Godly wisdom says, take what you know and put it to work, serving the kingdom of heaven, putting others first. But worldly wisdom says, take what you know and put it to work, setting yourselves above, above others at any cost. Godly wisdom comes from above. But worldly wisdom comes from earthly, unspiritual, and demonic influences. That's what he says right here. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Earthly means from this world, the wisdom of this world, the, the people that think they have it figured out here. Unspiritual is referring to our own sensual desires. Uh, the fleshly is how the, the amplified, or fleshly is how it can also be worded. The amplified Bible uses the the, uh, the word animal next to that, to that word there, unspiritual. Basically, our own personal, fleshly, instinctual desires. If you're operating in your knowledge based on those things, you might want to take a step back. And then obviously, demonic influence is, is self-explanatory. That's wisdom that is put in place by the devil. But how many know he's a liar and a, and a stealer and a destroyer and a killer? Whatever wisdom he gets you is not for your benefit, but to destroy you or others. However, even though worldly wisdom seems wise to this world, James says that it produces disorder in every vile practice. You know, I think if we can all agree, if we take a look at what's going on in this country, we can see that stuff happening. Worldly wisdom says, put yourself first. Worldly wisdom says, whatever makes you happy. Worldly wisdom says, look out for number one in every area of your life. 
Worldly wisdom says you have to be open to every single thing that's going on. Worldly wisdom says that if, you're not, if you don't accept what people do, then you don't really love them. But worldly wisdom leads to disorder in every vile practice. And I think we can all agree that's what's happening in this world today. But wisdom from above is what we're looking for. In James 3, 17 through 18, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Godly wisdom is so different than worldly wisdom. It doesn't put self first, but it puts others first. It doesn't sow dissension, but it sows peace. And I know that godly wisdom may not always make sense to us. Because so many times we're entrenched in what the world sees and not what God has, has to see for us. How many know that sending David in to fight Goliath probably didn't seem very wise to the, to the people at the time? Didn't make sense at all. But godly wisdom is not our wisdom. They thought he would be slaughtered, but we know the end of the story, right? He beat Goliath. And do you remember when the crowds were surrounding Jesus and they were hungry and the disciples thought it would be wise to send them away with enough time to get home to eat? But the wisdom of God said, no, you feed them. Even when it didn't make any sense, even when all they had was a few loaves and a couple fish, but the wisdom of God said, that'll feed thousands and have you basketfuls left over. Do you remember when they were taking Paul to Rome because he was a prisoner at the time? And as they were going by, they pulled over into a port called Fair Havens. And, and Paul said, you know what? You need to stay here for the winter. If we go, we're going to have loss of ship and loss of life. Godly wisdom says, stay here. But, but the pilot said, no, this isn't a good place to port for the winter. Godly wisdom said this would be a terrible place to be locked in for the winter. And we know what happened then, right? They lost the ship, and thank God all the lives were spared, but they definitely went shipwrecked because they weren't listening to godly wisdom. I remember that my wisdom said that uh, house churches are creepy. And that I would never set foot in one. I would never attend a house church. But godly wisdom said, yeah, you're going to have one. And I can see how this has turned out. Because I don't ever feel creepy when I'm with you guys. I don't ever feel anything like that. I feel love and I feel blessed. Godly wisdom was definitely more correct than mine. And I'm so thankful that, that I put my my stuff aside and listen to God because I'm so blessed with everybody here. And as we continue on into James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is en enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Like I said, James is not speaking to non-Christians as he's ministering this right now. He's not talking about, about people that aren't saved and are friends with the world. How many know that we can't expect people that aren't saved to act like Christians because, you know, they're not Christians? But people that are Christians should be looking different. They shouldn't look the same as everybody else. James is speaking to Christians who should know better. But when our eyes are set on the world, it causes no end of problems in our lives. Because our focus is on ourselves. And when our focus is on ourselves, it begins to cause all kinds of feelings to well up inside of us. And it causes us to desire all kinds of crazy things. And many times, once you start feeling those feelings and desires, it causes all kinds of causes people to do, causes people to do all kinds of crazy things to receive those things. Fights, quarrels, even murder. That's what he's talking about here. Is is what's causing the quarrels and what's causing the fight among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire not have, so you murder. You covet and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Their eyes were on themselves and not on the kingdom of heaven. Their eyes were not on God. He says, you know what, the reason why you don't have anything is because you don't ask. And then he quickly deals with that because someone is going to say, oh no, I ask all the time, God just doesn't give me anything. But he says, well then, the reason you ask and do not receive is because you do it wrongly. You know, there's always the, uh, the people that are, that are trying to prove, oh, God doesn't exist. God, the Bible says that if I ask for anything in the name of Jesus, then, then He'll give it to me. So, I'm going to ask... God, I want a jug of milk to appear right here. Oh, see, it didn't happen, so God doesn't exist. The problem is, is they're asking wrongly. There was no faith behind that request. He says that if you ask wrongly, especially when you're just wanting to, you're asking for yourself to spend it on your passions, if everything is about fueling your fleshly desires, don't be surprised if you don't receive what you ask for. You're asking wrongly. See, those with their eyes on the world are asking for the wrong things because their own passions are what they're asking for and those things are in contradiction to what God wants for their lives. They have placed something else in front of God. That's actually why James is calling them adulterous. <clears throat> he says that you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on passions. You adulterous people. How many know he's, while they were probably having some people with issues of adultery, that's not what he's referring to. He's not referring to people cheating on their spouses. He's referring to people cheating on God. We are the bride of Christ. And when we put our eyes somewhere else, then we are in an adulterous relationship with something else instead of being with God. In the Old Testament, God referred to the, referred to the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, as adulterous all the time because they were looking to other things instead of themselves. See, they were supposed to be the eyes, they were supposed to be the bride of Christ, but their eyes were on their mistress instead of on the one who loved them and gave everything for them. And sometimes I think that we can begin to justify these things. We can begin to say, well, this is really just harmless. Just small things, it's not that big of a deal. When we put something else first, when we put, and that can be anything music or TV or, or, jobs or school or anything that we do when we put it before God 
We're taking our, our eyes off of God and putting it on our mistress that we're trying to place in front of Him to call more important than Him. And we can justify and we can say all these things, but the, the Bible says that when we have friendship with the world, when, when the things of this world are more important, that that's enmity with God. That we become an enemy of God of our own choice. You know, when you were saved, when you received Jesus Christ into your life, the Bible says that you are no longer an enemy of God, but you're a child of God. You're His friend. But then we go ahead and make conscious choices to do completely the opposite. I think that we need to make the conscious choice to be friends of God and not enemies of God. Let's seek His kingdom and not of this world. And the great thing about it doesn't mean that you're not going to have what you need. It doesn't mean that you're going to be destitute. It doesn't mean that, that you have to be poor and have nothing or have no fun or do any of these things. But in Matthew 6, 31-33, it says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what? All these things will be added to you. This is Jesus speaking. I think we can, we can take it at His word. Amen? In James 4, 5-10 through 10, it says, Or do you suppose it is a, to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is jealous of you. Did you know that? God wants you to himself. He doesn't want to share you with the devil. He doesn't want to share you with the world. He loves you and wants the best for us. And wants the best for you. In Exodus 34:14 it says, "For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is jealous for you." His desire to have us is the reason that He also provided grace, which is everything that He accomplished in His Son. Because He wants us to, to depend on grace while the devil wants you to depend on yourselves. And God opposes the proud because in pride there is a declaration of self-sufficiency. In pride there is a declaration that I can do it on my own. The proud man doesn't need God. That's why God's opposed to pride. But the humble man realizes that he needs God and that without him, he will be unable to meet the requirements of righteousness. So instead, he leans on God's grace, which is the only path to righteousness. But no, the devil's not going to give up when that happens. He's going to keep on pursuing you. That's why he says, therefore, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. Because the devil is going to keep on coming. But know that if you resist him, instead of opening the door and let him in, he has to flee. He has no power in your life other than the power that you give to him. You are victorious in Jesus over the devil. But drawing near to God is the key in all of this. In Revelations 3, 20 through 21, it says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father in his throne. You know, we need to draw near to God with humility, recognizing that we need his grace. But when we receive it, we are victorious. We are conquerors. And and right here he says that the one who conquers in Jesus, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. You will be exalted sitting on his throne with him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to go ahead and uh, finish up on this last scripture. In James 4, 11-12, it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, this goes to the point that we need to be careful about what we say and speak about our neighbors and our our fellow Christians and our brothers. We're not to stand in judgment of one another. We're not to stand in and, you know, just like the speaking to each other, you know, speaking to the truth to someone in love has been so misunderstood. You're not to stand in judgment and tell them everything they've done wrong, but, but stand and tell them everything that Christ has accomplished and then remind them that they're victorious. When we hold somebody up to a yardstick that we can't even stand up against, there's a problem. You know, it's so true that we tend to judge others by their worst, but we always judge ourselves by our best. We need to speak to people as those who are redeemed instead of speaking evil to them. Speak words of encouragement to them to lift them up. See, the truth is that our judgment is not what gets to send somebody to heaven or send somebody to hell. When we look at our brothers judging by the law, even though we're not a doer of the law, we're just acting as a judge. Doesn't it seem strange to you? We want to claim that we're not under the law. We're not doers of the law because we're, we're redeemed, but we want to hold other people up to these standards. And that's not to say that there's not things in place, that there's not accountability, that there's not leadership that's to, to hold people accountable. But the truth is that we're not to judge others. We're supposed to encourage them, to lift them up, to restore them. The Bible says that if you see your brother sin, it doesn't say to judge him, it says to restore them. And our judgment is not going to send anyone to heaven or hell. We don't have that power to save or destroy. Only God has that. And he says that anyone who believes in his son will not be judged. Because they were already judged in in his son. You know, we don't have the power to send anybody to heaven or hell, but we do have the power to declare victory and declare righteousness in their lives as we tell them about what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And we can declare the forgiveness of sins and their freedom from that, those sins. So let's choose to be a people who watch what we say. Let's choose to be a people that have what comes out of our mouth be an overflowing of what Jesus has done in our hearts. Let's be known by our love. Amen? Amen. Let's go and stand to our feet.